Good morning. Welcome to worship. Good to see you. Before we get started with our service, let me just announce uh, two things that you'll see on the back of your bulletin. The first uh, is that the youth are meeting tonight at the McCool's house, which is uh, Zach Boyle's old house, if that makes sense. Uh, It's at the end of East Park Street. If you're part of the youth group and you're going to that and you need directions, just let me know or ask someone you think would know. That's tonight at 7 p.m. The the next announcement, the last announcement that I'll say out loud is the decorating for VBS. The dates are wrong, so it's actually Monday, June 20th uh, through the 22nd. If you can come out for any of those evenings to help decorate, we would greatly appreciate that. Those are all of our announcements. God is here with us by his spirit, welcoming us to worship, commanding us to worship. Would you please take a few moments uh, to maybe pray that God would help you worship this morning, uh, to help you focus and be able to listen. Let's take a few moments to do that now as the music plays. We begin our worship with a call to worship. This is God's word that comes to you and invites you to respond to him. And 
Our call to worship this morning is in 1 Chronicles 16. Here, the Ark of the Covenant has been replaced in Jerusalem, and David is saying, God is among us. Let's worship. So we're using his words because God is among us, and so we should worship. Would you stand for our call to worship? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Would you call upon his name and sing to him. Him 100. Holy, holy, holy. Let's sing together 100. To our holy God, we give praise and honor that is due your name. You are wonderful. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are the almighty God. 
and you have come near to us. We trust that you are here with us, and we thank you for your presence. The same as it was with David when the Ark of the Covenant, as a symbol of your presence, was right in front of them. Now, your promise is our certainty. You are here, dwelling among the praises of your people. Now, O oh God, we pray that you would draw near to us, that we might know your favor and grace, released from our sins, our guilt, our shame, our anxiety, our worry and fear, that we might repent of all our sin and come close to the living God for whom we are made and by whose name we are called. Now, O oh Father, we pray that you would be pleased with our worship, that you would receive it through Christ Jesus as we offer it in faith, we acknowledge that even our worship is impure, but you are so gracious as to receive from us what, all, all that we could give you and be pleased with it. Father, as those who know your pleasure and wish to follow you at every point, we pray that you would help us follow you by taking the prayer you taught us to pray. We pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A friend of mine was going to a Bible study on the book of Romans, and he came to me. He, was a, he, he didn't believe he was exploring Christianity. And he came to me after one particular Bible study, and he said, Listen, if what that said is true, what keeps you being good? And when he said that, I grinned. I wanted to kind of pump my fist because I knew that he'd heard the gospel. Because Paul only a couple of chapters later, anticipates if you've been listening to him, you'd ask the same thing. Should we just continue in sin because of this grace? Now, he tells you no. And our confession of faith helps us ask that question and also at least answer it partially. Why is it that those who have been saved by grace are to seek obedience rather than just continue in sin? And as you believe in Christ, take hold of these words. Let them become your own I'll read the normal print if you will confess what is in bold. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we yet do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image, so that with our whole life we may show ourselves thankful to God for his benefits, and he may be praised by us. Further, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and that by our godly walk of life we may win our neighbors for Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? By no means. Scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In 
in our uh, youth gatherings on Sunday nights, uh, I have decided to, to teach through the doctrine of predestination. Uh, because it's summertime, we don't have a lot of school going on, obviously. I thought we could go into a, a deeper topic uh, with our youth group uh, than we might normally on a Sunday evening. And the topic of predestination and election, uh, they're deep, and they raise a lot of questions, a lot of conflict, and um, I'm sure you all, uh, at one point in time, um, if you're a Christian, have asked these questions and approached these topics with great care. Uh, The reason I bring that up is because I'd like to frame our time of prayer around the teaching, um, a, a scripture passage that helps us understand what's at the foundation of that doctrine, which is the grace of God, the grace of God. And when we approach this passage from Deuteronomy, it leads us into a place of humility. And when we're able to be humble before God, we can experience uh, a greater openness with him in prayer and ask him to work in us. So I'd like to read this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7, and then uh, we'll have a brief time of silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So this is the passage I picked, and you might have heard this before. Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a holy a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There is nothing in us that makes us more deserving of God's grace, except for God's mercy and love that he has shown to sinners. That is why we worship him, and that's why we're here. So in this humble place, let's go before God, bring him our needs, uh, our thoughts, whatever it might be that we would like to be in conversation with God about. Let's take a few moments to do that in silent prayer now, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are perfect and perfectly content in your triune being. You created the universe, the planet that we live in. Strength and joy are in your place, as Chronicles says. And if we really saw you in all your power, in all your grandeur, your magnitude, we we wouldn't know how to speak. And so we pray and we give thanks for entering into a relationship with us 
when we had none with you. We bless you this morning, God, for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Dear God, we are tempted to believe that there's something special in us and that you chose to save us because of something that's within us, but you tell us that we're not any more deserving than anyone else, that we are all guilty of sin against you, of hatred towards you, and we would be lost without your saving grace. Because of your electing love, God, you sent your son Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Because of your electing, predestining love, we have no ultimate fear of death or fear of how this life will turn out because you're with us. You are sovereign over all of life. God, you will see to it that your name is hallowed and your glory fills the earth. And we worship you and we thank you for bringing us into this work. Lord Jesus, many of your people here this morning are hurting and they're in need of your spirit's encouragement. And we pray that you would encourage them and lift them up this morning. Lord, some people here have questions about you. And we ask that you would patiently walk with them as they come to know you and bring their questions to you and your people as they find more about who you are and your love for them. God, there are those in our church who we have been praying for and continue to pray for uh, who are recovering from illness, who have gone through surgery or treatment uh, and who are in deep pain, chronic illness even. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with them. Help us to be encouragers. Help us to see the needs that we can uh, provide for and help with. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you as our Father, as only a child can, relying completely on your care. We pray that you would magnify your name through this worship service this morning, that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word as it's preached to us, and that the hymns would lead us to a greater joy in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll take a few moments now uh, for our uh, a time to give our tithes and offerings um, as God has given much and shown grace to you in ways that we can barely describe. We respond out of thanksgiving uh, with our tithes and offerings. So let's do that now.
Our great God and Father, you provide for us generously, so we give thanks to you. We want to make known your deeds to all peoples. With our offering, we confess and make known you have provided for us. And you are generous and good to all that you have made. So, Father, we pray that you would receive this offering as our act of worship and thanksgiving and faith, that we depend on you, but we belong to you, body and soul. All of us, all of our things, all of our time is yours. We pray that you would dedicate this offering to those things which please you, preserve uh, your ministry in the world, and make your name great, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we approach the scriptures, would you take your hymn uh, book and turn to number five. God my King, thy might confessing. Let's sing together number five. Please be seated. We take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 145. We've borrowed uh, a phrase from John Calvin. And when we are thinking about our study, as we skip around through the Psalms, looking at different types of Psalms, uh, he calls the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. That is to say that, that we'll find something in the Psalms that helps draw out of uh, our souls everything that's there. All, all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the dispositions, whether it's 
uh, ecstasy and joy or sadness and anger. It's all captured in the Psalms. Or we might say it's, it's, uh, we're looking for a psalm for every occasion. Now, uh, I don't know that you have the exact same experience that I do. But when I think about praying to God, when it comes time to say I have requests to make, I have a nice long list and I find it really easy to, to come up with the things I need to ask God for. And then um, I've got a, a, a pretty comfortable list of, well, comfortable is not the right word, a pretty ready list of sins to confess when I need to pray for God, to God and to seek his forgiveness. And even Thanksgiving comes rather easily. There are plenty of things to note, to take, pay attention to my life and to give thanks to God. But the very first thing that Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name, is to adore God in prayer. And I find that that doesn't come quite so easily. I just don't have the words for it. Well, hymns, like we've just sung, sometimes help. Those can be our prayers. Psalm 145 is just that. It's really a hymn. It's a way to praise God. It's to help us draw out of our souls the praise that our souls delight and desire to give to God. And so when I need words, here God provides them for me. Psalm 145, before we read it, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to to equip ourselves to praise you. You're praiseworthy. And when we don't have the words, we come to you and say, can you give us the right words? Can you draw out of our souls the praise that we want to give our Father, our gracious God, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, our Helper, the Holy Spirit? We want to give you praise. So we pray, teach us how. And fill our souls with your goodness that we might be moved to praise and to enjoy our God as we glorify him forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 145, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to your Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous 
in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is God's word. It is completely true and utterly trustworthy. C.S. Lewis, famously an uh, atheist or agnostic person who uh, became a believer in Christ, talks about some of the things that sort of turned him off to Christianity. Uh, Perhaps before he became a believer, even after he became a believer, some things he found maybe distasteful, at least at first. One of them was the idea that God constantly commands us to praise. He said it felt to him like uh, the, the, the woman who just always wants her wit to be recognized by other people or the man who wants his fashion sense to be noticed and commented on, and you just kind of don't like being around that person. Now, all that was the case for uh, Lewis until he noticed something. He noticed that uh, there were reasons in his own life, that spontaneously praise would erupt. Not, not for praise for God necessarily, but just he, he noticed that, for instance, when he read a really good poem, he was a, he was a literature snob. And, and so when he, when he read really good writing, he would recognize it. And when he read something that was really good, he'd want to praise it to his friends and talk about it and go over all its beauties and the way this, the, the words were constructed and how it was put together, drawing out in voice those things which were praiseworthy. And he wanted his friends to join him, to read it and see it too. You've probably had that experience. You had something great happen to you, something you saw that was wonderful, and you said, i got to tell people. As he began to experience that kind of spontaneous praise, he began to see... Psalms like Psalm 145 in a whole new light. Here's what he says. His words from uh, a reflection on the Psalms, chapter 9, if you want to go see it in its context. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of a compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing it, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. It was because they enjoyed, it's because David enjoyed God, he's doing what you do with everything you enjoy. He praises it and calls you to come see it too to come praise with him. Lewis goes on. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It's not enough for me to experience something great and enjoyable. I got to tell you about it to finish the experience. You ever seen something great and go, man, I can't tell anybody. It's terrible. You want to finish by talking about it. 
It is along these lines, C.S. Lewis says, that I find it easiest to understand the Christian doctrine that heaven is a state in which the angels now and men hereafter are perpetually employed in praising God. This does not mean, as it can so dismally suggest, that it's like being in church. For our services, he puts that in quotes, both in their conduct and in our power to participate, are merely attempts at worship. Never fully successful, often 99.9% failures, sometimes total failures. Heaven, in his eyes, is that we begin to enjoy God so much that it's impossible for us to stop praising. The joy is so full that you begin to praise what you enjoy with the other people because that is what happens spontaneously. And right now, we're, we're approximating it. We're trying to get there. We need someone to give us words. We need training in just how to do it so that we can learn to enjoy God really deeply, profoundly. That is what praise is. It's why Jesus starts by saying, when you pray, start this way, hallowed be your name. Because you want to adore this God who is lovely and wonderful. And it puts into context everything else. So I want you to see some of the ways that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can help you praise God and enjoy him. The first is, he wants you to see God's greatness. And we can see this on every verse in those first seven verses, but just look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. This is the foundation of praise and worship. It's the greatness of God. Now, when we say the greatness of God, what do we mean? All right, I, it's not really this, but I want you to think of it this way. Greatness in like size. God is big. Now, I don't think that's the perfect illustration or perfect thing to think about, but it's, think of it as God is overwhelming. When um, I was in college, a friend of mine gave me some tickets to go watch an NBA game. And I said, great, let's go watch it. So I go to this NBA game and in person, it is a completely different experience. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these people who aren't the same species as I am. They are enormous. I mean, just, just about, not quite, but almost indescribably big and fast and stunning. So they don't look like they're really human. They look like something else. It was... It was something about their greatness. Now, listen to me when I tell you this. That was amazing. God made stars and solar systems and galaxies. When I tell you that these NBA players looked great, you hear why David goes, yeah, God's greatness, unsearchable. It's beyond finding out. If you were to take eternity and explore the greatness of God, you would not get to the end of it. It will exhaust your efforts. And Christian, you have eternity, and you will never get to the end of His greatness. It is more than you can imagine. All right? 
borrow from the classic Star Wars. It's when Luke's trying to convince Han Solo to go rescue Princess Leia, and he knows the way to get him is money. He says, it's more wealth than you can imagine. His response is, I can imagine quite a bit. Go ahead with your sanctified imagination and imagine as wide as you can, as magnificent as you can, as great as you can, this God, and he will exceed it. You can't get to the end of it. Look at the words the psalmist uses. In verse 4, your works, your mighty acts. Verse 5, your glorious splendor and your majesty. In verse 5 again, your wondrous works. In verse 6, the might of your awesome deeds. All right, awesome is such a great word. Now, we use it for like, that game was awesome. But I can describe the game. Awesome is something that leaves you in stunned silence. You search for the words and they don't come. In fact, it leaves you breathless. You can hardly catch your breath in the presence of awesome. That is what the psalmist is here describing. Your awesome deeds. I will declare your greatness. They pour forth your fame. Abundant goodness. These are words he's searching for to give to what is indescribable. He is not touching the depths of God's greatness. He's simply pointing in the direction. If you'll go that way and explore his greatness, you can go that way forever and never reach the end. God is so great. He is overwhelming. And it is his greatness, his fame, that is for us the starting point of worship. He is over us, bigger than us. He is not our equal. He's not a companion, a friend, in the sense that he's uh, someone we can just buddy around with. He is the awesome, transcendent, magnificent, majestic, great God. And the only sensible response is to be stunned into praise and worship. This becomes not just the foundation for praise and worship, it becomes the foundation for every component of ministry. John Piper, in his book on evangelism and world missions, says missions exist because worship doesn't. Become, I become so convinced, so aware of God's greatness as I praise and honor him and recognize him that I say it's not enough that I'm the one praising him. I want every voice everywhere to praise him. And there are places on planet earth and people who are here and they don't praise God because they don't see him. And so I'm compelled by the greatness of God to engage in missions. You see, it becomes the foundation of all of your Christian life. My good works are employed not because I need to earn something, not because I ever could, but because God is worthy of it and I see his greatness. And I say, I got to worship that and I'll give him my voice, but I'll give him my mind and my actions and my wealth and myself. God's greatness is the foundation of worship and every other part of the Christian life 
But it's not as if this great and awesome God who is, well, important. That's an understatement. It's not that he is distant or aloof. He is rich with mercy and compassion. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here, David is quoting Exodus. And in Exodus, Moses is asked to see the glory, the beauty, the weight, the transcendence of God. And God says, if I showed you the full thing, you couldn't handle it. But I'll give you all you can handle. I'll let you see the trailing glimpse of glory. And as he does, God explains what Moses is seeing with these words. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is God's self-description. He says, this is who I am. The, The leading edge of your experience of God is grace, mercy, compassion, and love. A transcendent, holy, righteous, just God leads with mercy and compassion. This is the primary experience of God's children. And look where the psalmist goes next. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. God is not merely good and merciful to the people who believe in him. To his children, he gives a saving mercy that lasts into eternity. But God is good to even the people who utterly reject him. In the book of Jonah, when Jonah is angry that God had mercy on Nineveh, and God is explaining why Jonah should not be mad, he ends with this. There were thousands of people who didn't know their right from their left, and much cattle, and much cattle. God is so good that he cares about the cows. When our kids were little, which I now feel with great nostalgia. We would be driving, and every time we would drive, we're heading down the side of the road, we would comment, look, cows. Because, you know, you're driving with kids, you're like, you got to notice something. We're like, so this is the most interesting thing here, there are cows. God would say something like this. I love those cows. I love those cows. All that he has made, he is good. And do you not know, child of God, that you are more important than they are? Such is his compassion. I want you to take one moment. This is part of your worship today. Take a moment to drink in, to meditate on, to hold in your mind these two amazing truths, the awesome, wonderful, great, majestic God looks on you with compassion and draws near with mercy. He is kind to you. And he is a good king. This is where the psalmist goes next. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to their children of the, uh, the children of man your mighty deeds 
and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Here we see this God who is great and awesome beyond our comprehension, who is rich with mercy, has come to bring his power and his rule over you. He has brought you in underneath his good, glorious, splendorous kingdom. And here you get the essence of the church's witness to the world. You are to show the world this is what it's like to have the living God as king. This is your act of worship to show the world his goodness as he rules over you. How do you do so? You trust his words. You obey his commands. You enjoy the security and love of the great king. Now, this kingdom is forever. There's nothing that can shake it. There's nothing that can threaten it. I assure you that there are things that can threaten the American Republic. There are things that can threaten every human institution. And if we were to wait around long enough, they will all dissolve. But God's kingdom will stand. And there is no war or rumor of war that can threaten your king and the kingdom of which you're a citizen. You know why Jesus says over and over again, don't be afraid? He says it because I'm your king. And the kingdom cannot fail. And so there might be days in which what happens in the halls of power make you nervous, but your Jesus is still king. There might be days when what happens in the halls of power make you go, finally, a good step. You still have confidence, not in the halls of power, but in Jesus, your king. The reason we can bring our most anxious thoughts and hand them over to our king as he says, I rule and you belong to me. And so put yourself in my care. And now what kind of witness would that show a world in which you see great polarization and constant anxiety and terrible fear? But a people who say, Yes, some things are very bad, and I would like to see them improved. But at the end of the day, Jesus is king, and I am not going to be shaken. His kingdom is forever and ever. Hallelujah. And so we praise our king for his great kingdom. We also recognize that when his greatness his power and might, his awesome deeds, his wonderful, inexpressible compassion meet, and he rules over us. It's expressed in his good providence. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord provides for you his compassion when you are failing. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. He provides for your needs. Verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. 
God's providential care is not merely for his children. He satisfies birds and lions and rebels and his children. And if he cares about them, do you not think he will fill you with what is good? Can you trust his providence? This awesome, compassionate king? He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. When's the last time you were weeping and you called out to God? And my guess is, at least at some point in that trajectory, you said, God, are you really listening? Because the weeping went on for a while. And I want you to hear this psalmist say to you very clearly, yes, he was listening. Indeed, he was saving Maybe you are there now. I want you to hear the psalmist saying that his providence, this good and gracious king, is reaching into your weeping today and bringing his powerful salvation. Great and awesome is this compassionate king. He preserves and saves. What you feel like will undo you will not because his grip on you is stronger than this affliction that you carry. And in verse 21, he brings home the last thought. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. I have abundant reasons. I can talk about his greatness. I can talk about his compassion. I can talk about his kingdom. I can talk about his providence. I can talk about his justice. In verse 20, the Lord preserves those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Those who reject his beauty, who reject his power, who reject his compassion, who refuse to submit to his kingdom are also rejecting his protection. He is imminently just. And so the psalmist says, for all these reasons, I will speak praise. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever. And why don't you come do it with me? I want you to recognize what the psalmist here is not really trying primarily to say. I got these commands. You're not going to want to do them, but you need to. That's your duty. He's primarily saying, I have beheld the living God in his word, and I trust him, and now I enjoy him, and I can't stop. You've got to come do this with me. You've got to come look at him. Come see what I've seen. Come behold this living God who is better than you can imagine and more praiseworthy than you have dared think. Come behold him with me. That's what the psalmist is saying and inviting you to come and enjoy him just as much. God is worthy of our praise, and our praise actually helps us enjoy him. Let me turn back to C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says. Meanwhile, you know, during our lives today, of course we are merely, as Dunn, the poet John Dunn says, tuning our instruments. 
What you're doing here in C.S. Lewis' great illustration is tuning your instrument. He says this, the tuning up of an orchestra can be itself delightful. Have you ever been to, you know, right before the symphony begins and all the people are out there and they're, they're playing, it's a, it's a chaos of, of noise. But to a connoisseur, there's a certain delight in the chaos. Why is that? Here's what he says. It can be delightful, but only to those who can in some measure, even a little, anticipate the symphony. The tuning of the instruments is only interesting because you know the beautiful symphony is coming. If worship in this life and in this church and these services, it's tuning our instrument, of course it feels a little chaotic and of course it feels like something less than, and of course sometimes 99.9% failure but it's because we're just tuning the instruments. The symphony is coming. More Lewis. The Jewish sacrifices and even our own most sacred rites as they actually occur in human experience are like the tuning. Promise, not performance. Hence, like the tuning, they may have in them much duty and little delight or none, but the duty exists for the delight When we carry out our religious duties, we are like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when the water comes, it may find them ready. I mean, for the most part, there are happy moments, even now, when a trickle creeps along a dry bed. And happy souls to those whom this happens often. I hope that today there was a certain trickle of enjoying your God as you listen to him described in Psalm 145, but please know it is just that a trickle of water preparing you for a torrent of a river that will explode and cause you to see his greatness is unsearchable. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. We give you praise and honor For you are great. You're not distant in your greatness, but compassionate and near to us. You are our king. You protect and provide and lift us up and sustain us. And now our mouths will give you praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you to take your hymnals and turn to hymn 17 and respond to God's word by giving him the praise that he is worthy of. Hymn 17, let's stand and sing.
to the praise of his glorious grace, the great and awesome God gives his blessing to his beloved people. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.